Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How you doing, my friend? Merlin, man. <sighs> Do you want to ride on my John Roderick? That's the consensus. That, or you can have... Oh, God, that's terrible. I ask people, you can have that, or you can have John. Ah. Oh, that's that's awesome. You like that one better? Oh, yeah. Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. John Roderick theme. That's amazing. Let me, let me try and really do it. John! Ah! Gnome! Savior, Savior of the universe! Of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's tailor-made. Are you okay with that? I, I did it once before, and I think he scoffed. No, I, I must, it must not have come through clearly, because that is exactly what I've always wanted. Now, if memory serves, you had one eye on uh, Kiss, and the other eye was on Queen, uh, when you were a kid, and you your eyes drifted like one lazy eye and the other followed, you ended up on Queen. Is that accurate? That's correct. When I was in, uh, I think fourth grade, it was um, it was it really could have gone either way, Queen or Kiss. <laughs> and, I like uh, I like that you had to choose. Yeah, well, you know, you could be Kiss Army, which which I was initially, uh, uh, but or you could be one of the champions, the Queen Navy. You could be in the Queen Navy. You could be in the yeah. You could be a sailor in the Queen sub. You could be a member of the submarine Queen submarine. Easy, he's tiger. <laughs> and uh, and I realized I think I think I was still too young to realize that Queen was infinitely superior to Kiss in every way, musically and in every other respect. Mm-hmm. I just chose based on. I don't know. I think, you know, I think I chose based on heavy riffage. Is that right? I think the riffage, it was the riffage that tipped the scales. Hmm. The, the kiss riffage, if you really strip away all the... Ah, uh, here we go. All the makeup and all the yeah. boots and mm. all the cod pieces and the blood packets. You're telling me, you're telling me that the ridiculous, over-the-top, unnecessary theatricality Mm-hmm. Of Kiss was just too much for you, and so you went with Queen. <laughs> <coughs> That's correct. Let me ask you the hard question, because mm-hmm. I can tell you uh, from that same time, uh, my, one of my other big bands, I was always attracted to the theatricality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, village people. How'd you feel? The, uh, you you feel, live in San Francisco. What, what, village people had a song called San Francisco. Yes, they did. I, I was a fan of the village people. Weren't they fun? They were fun. I the, was a fan. I was a fan of the village people because ACDC genuinely scared me. Uh, the record covers of ACDC in the 70s Ooh, yeah. were, were, were genuinely scary. They were sweaty men, and they looked, uh, they looked vile. They looked like they wanted to put a finger in you. <laughs> and as a child, I instinctively did not want one of their fingers in me. They're from Australia, so they turn it the other way. Yeah, right. Once, yeah, once it's in. Is that highway, to, highway to Hell? Is that the one where uh, Angus has the uh, horns mm-hmm. and like a sneer? There's one. Yeah, it's a sneery sneer. It's it was scary. It, it, I, I I remember the day that record came out, and it was on, you know, it was on the, it was on the end cap of every aisle in Peaches or whatever record <laughs> I store. <love> peaches. <laughs> and uh, and I was at the Northgate Mall with my mom. All I wanted was a snow cone. <laughs> and and uh, and uh, my God, the uh, the record just oh, and and I think it was on the records. It was on the stands at the same time as as the Village People record, and it, there was no no question. 
the village people seemed much friendlier. There was an Indian. I mean, they seemed like guys you could play guns with, you know? Well, like like Kiss, uh, I think I was attracted to them for their, what, comic bookness, their cartoonishness. Mm-hmm. You know what right. I mean? Right. Yeah, no, the deciding factor with Queen, I think, just was... Um, it is that thing that in Brian May's guitar tone, mm-hmm. which is the most organic sound that even a child can understand that that is the greatest guitar tone of all time. Even a little infant, if you played the sound of Kiss, which is the sound of like handicapped people having sex... Or the sound of Queen, which is the sound of angels singing in the night. You have to go with Queen every time. I can tell you're feeling better. I'm feeling better. What kind of handicap? Oh, I mean, is it I a movement mean, is it a movement uh, impairment. Is it a I, you know? It's more of a visual hand, thing. Kiss is more handicapable. Mm-hmm. They they uh, they turned it around. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a disability and they and they made it a strength. God bless them. Yeah, I mean, imagine what Gene Simmons would be doing. Otherwise, imagine him working at a DMV. He seems, I mean, like when you, when you see him talk, he seems almost like somebody who would be like in venture capital or debt collection. Like he seems very business minded. He is Donald Trump. Hmm. Put, put Gene Simmons and Donald Trump next to each other. They're the same man. Even an infant could tell. Even an infant could listen to those two guys and know that they are, that they are an unholy Union, an unholy like a an unholy pair of. I mean, think about Gene Simmons's hair for a second when he's not wearing his wig. Oh, that that thing he has now. It's the same. It's Donald Trump's hair. It's the same stuff. It's made of the same sort of like like a rhinoceros pubic hair. Or whatever. I was, yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, Donald Trump's hair looks like a, a penthouse uh, cooch. And I think uh, Gene Simmons Ooh. looks more like something from Japan. I mean, if it's not pixelated. I don't know why they pixelate everything. It's very troubling. I see what you mean. I wish the Germans would pixelate. I, you know what it was for me with Queen? It was those harmonies. You oh, know? yeah. Now, right. now, That's very theatrical. Who was there? Now, we know, as music nerds, we know that, for example, on Bohemian Rhapsody, I mean, you know the story on Bohemian Rhapsody. You ever seen that, the TV show on that or read about it? Like how long, yeah, how long it took to do that? Yeah. 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 In fact, I have the, um, I have some of the... There was a while there, the studio nerds. The <laughs> Don't stu- you, didn't you have like a DVD wallet full of like behind the music things? I do, I do have that. But <laughs> in addition to that, there was a while there where the studio nerds, and the studio nerds may be doing this still. I haven't been in the recording studio in a while. But they were trading around the multi-track tapes of various of these great albums. And we got the multi-tracks of Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, where you could actually solo the individual tracks. They didn't bounce. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I the, thought they bounced until the tape was going to break. That, 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 but that's the thing. You've got you, you, you're still at the time working on a 24 track tape, right? Mm-hmm. So there are still 24 individual tracks, and you could you could solo these tracks, and each track had been bounced down. There were so many harmonies stacked up on each one of these tracks, and then there were multiple tracks of them. But just to listen to the individual, you know, the individual pieces of that puzzle, and you, you just you get one step closer to understanding how it was put together. Uh, you know, you, you're sitting in the recording studio listening to it through the good speakers, and just like, oh my god, this is an amazing work. 
And you, we've we've talked about this in other venues, but necessary for the three to overdub themselves, bounce these. In the end, eighth generation tapes were used. Various sections of tape containing that had to be spliced. May recall placing a tape in front of the light and being able to see through it as they had been recording so intensely. That's unbelievable. Can you imagine that if the tape broke after all of that? It would be sad. Although back in back in the day, tape, you know, cutting tape was a big part of making records. So mm-hmm. if the tape, you, know, you, you think about like, oh no, what if the tape broke? But in fact, they would just cut it back together. Yeah. I went to a I went to a speech by Roy Thomas Baker, the man who produced the album. Oh, overproduced listen, it to, to, to great to great delight on on my as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and listen to him talk about that process, and uh, I don't know. It's that that is uh, I could go up the I could go up the river all the way to Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking mm. about Bohemian Rhapsody, I, I would enjoy that. Now, are you an RTB fan in general? Do you like you like the Cars? That first Cars record, something else. He's incredible. He's a great he's a great producer, and and listening to him talk. A great dude. Where's that right? Is he, what country is he from? He's from the Inglang. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you can still go make records with him if you want. You can go to Inglang and make a record with Roy Thomas Baker. Wow. And he has a studio and he will make a record with you. If you pay him the money, he will do it. Have you thought about that at all? Well, yeah. I mean, he made, he made, uh, he made a great foreigner record. He made. He made a. He made what I consider to be Nazareth record. <laughs> he made what I consider to be a, a an overrated, underrated. Excuse me, slightly underrated. Not a hugely underrated, but slightly underrated cheap trick record. All right. He did one on one, which I. Right. Well, she's that, tight. That she's tight is a pretty great song. She's nice. She's tight. She's giving me the go. She's giving me the high sign. That's so good. It's so good. Man, so he, made, he made those Journey records. Is that right? Yeah, no, late seventies Journey records. What? He made, he made Infinity. He made Evolution. Oh come on! Oh, he did. I'm gonna have to. And check the thing that. is, he's still working. He fucking worked on Chinese Democracy. Like, <laughs> you, you can you can make a record with this man, and he's hilarious. He's uh, he's he, and he he's, looks. Awesome. I don't know if you're. I don't know if you're near a computer right now, but uh, his his. Uh, I'm a big fan. I must tell you, I've discussed this elsewhere. I'm a big fan of Wikipedia photos because, mm. as you know, they must be public <laughs> domain. <laughs> and, and his uh, is. It looks like it looks like maybe his aunt or niece, perhaps, shot it uh-huh. with uh, something that she'd gotten out of a cereal box. <laughs> There's definitely one flash source. The flash is very very bright. That's nice. He looks kind of like uh, Ozzy Osbourne meets like the guy from uh, Rocky Horror. Now you know this is the thing though. When you you think about working with somebody like him or famously somebody like Todd Rundgren. I mean, Todd Rundgren right. has made some people sound really, really good, but he sounds pretty tough to work with. A lot of people are tough to work with. I mean, I think uh, you can make a record with you can make a, a record with a lot of sort of rock stars, mm-hmm. uh, and some of those people are. Are tougher than others. I, you know, I, the the uh, the guy from not not Elliot Easton. If I could make a record with Elliot Easton, I absolutely would. But the guitar player of the Talking Heads, um, Jerry Harrison. Jerry Harrison. Mm-hmm. You can make a record with Jerry Harrison, and my understanding is that you know that he he like shows up at noon and leaves at five. I don't know that to be sure. Did he, but he I, produced? Uh, didn't he produce a Pete? Buck thing a long time ago. What am I? Th- what am I confusing that with? What was no no Jerry Harrison? What was like Young Gods or something? Gods was that his band? Oh uh, well, he was in. He was in. Um, 
Modern Lovers. Modern Lovers. But he also, well, you know what I'm thinking of? Pete Buck, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm totally confused. Pete Buck produced uh, that Feelies record I like. Oh, Peter. Now, Peter Buck, that would be an interesting guy to have produced your record. I bet he'd have good notes on the songs, too. He would. I do not know how well he would communicate to you, hmm. though. I think Scott McCoy I met him once, and he seemed, he seemed um, like, a, like a really down-to-earth guy who was extremely nervous. Peter Buck. Mm-hmm. He was backstage at a thing, and he was being mobbed. He's an extremely nice man, a very nice man, a smart and nice person who has what I would characterize, speaking as a professional, as a mental health professional, mm-hmm. I would characterize him as having a social anxiety disorder. Okay. I have friends that have that. Yes, I know you do. I have spent time with your friends. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of, it's almost a prerequisite. It's on the form, which they don't want to fill out because they don't like pencils either. You know what? Can I just say that as usual? Can I tell you how I stand? Corrected. Oh my God, he did you almost have kind of every a wide, sta- uh, wide stance. Hmm? Oh, I have a very wide stance. Yeah. He did. He's done, of course. Uh, RTB. Ooh. RTB. Sorry. Oh yeah. Sorry, RTB right. did a bunch of the Queen records. Probably looks like almost all of them. He did Devo. Mm. He did. You are absolutely correct. I stand further corrected. He did Infinity and Evolution. See, man. Infinity. We, we got to get back to Journey at some point. It's it's an awkward awkward thing to talk. About. They did he did the Darkness, that controversial band, the Darkness. Smashing Pumpkins, he's, Smashing he's, Pumpkins. That's a band I could do without. He did wow. a later Smashing Pumpkins record. He's not responsible for them. Ugh. He did he he did one after after the fat bald kid decided that people needed to hear him sing. Charlie Brown. Yeah, whatever. Dunga, 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 dunga. He, he, Smashing Pumpkins are a classic example of one of those <sighs> bands where it was like, everybody likes you. What in the fuck was the deal with... How, what the fuck happened with Smashing... How did they get to be so popular? What is there a formula, John Roderick? Because you were there. You worked at the Grunge Museum. You saw a lot of this go by. You, you, did, you were a bar back. You were a manager. You counted money. You peeled off hundreds. What the fuck happened? How did Smashing Pumpkins get on our radar screen? Smashing Pumpkins... You know, he was a very good guitar player, and that music was... Um, it was, it was, I think what it, what it was, he took the sound of shoegazer, mm-hmm. which was very popular in England, but the shoegazer guys, except for Stone Roses or a couple, you know, there, there mm-hmm. weren't a lot of songs. Shoegazer was kind of a vibe. They had more in- influence here than, than interest. Yeah, right. It was, it was a vibe, but, but when it would come to America, we'd be like, there's no songs there. It's just like, and Smashing Pumpkins kind of had that. They got that My Bloody Valentine thickness to their son. Gish? Their well, they had that well, one record I liked. Gish, I want to say yeah. Gish. But it his had... vocals were mixed way down. Mm-hmm. So it sounded like just this wall of guitars and then this kind of echoey singer. And it, it's just, it sounded really compelling. And they had songs. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, aha, voila. That's what you're, that, that, that's always what you were looking for. My problem with the Stone Roses was I, after that, Aside from that one tune, like the rest of the stuff just felt like meh. I want to be adored. Yeah, well, that was a, no, or she's a waterfall. The one Stone Roses tune, the uh, uh, their, their biggest hit, the the one where the oh yeah, I was thinking the, the drum drum dance beat. Yeah, I was thinking of that uh, that first song that. Uh, here's the problem also with all these social anxiety people i'm guessing here what's his name charlie uh what's his name charlie rose what's his name billy billy corrigan billy yeah billy corrigan billy corrigan the smartest kid in the world he uh i think his problem (laughs) (laughs) billy Billy corrigan's problem see and this also goes this goes for all these people but the possible exception of prince and maybe prince is these people who are who are clearly insane loners who are very gifted 
and have learned. Oh, you know what? How about uh, how about uh, how about the uh, the Weezer guy? Like oh, Fool, Fool's Gold. That was the that was the tune. The Stone Roses. Fool's, Fool's Gold. Gold. I had that record. You know those <laughs> records? All those records. Those man. Those Manchester records. Like three quarters of them, I had no idea why people liked them. I still don't understand Happy Mondays. And then and a lot of them just didn't age well. That, even that Stone Roses record, it did not have legs. Not like a lot of other bands at the time. No, they didn't age well. They didn't even age well in the time it took the songs to get from the speakers to your ears. By the time you took off the uh, plastic. But you, I'm guessing, were not standing on a beach in Goa in 1989. What, 1989? Sup- yeah, super, no, no, super, no. super high on MDMA hmm. and with your body covered in Dayglow paint. Hmm. Because if you were, then the music would have made perfect sense to you. Mm-hmm. I actually had a, the, the, the sort of strange experience of being in southern Spain in 1989 when all that music was blowing up and I was taking a lot of, of, uh, of little, little square pieces of paper and eating a lot of uh, little uh, bits of uh, like uh, mescaline and... And I thought you were talking about train tickets for a second. <laughs> I was eating a lot of train tickets. I was smoking a lot of very black hash that had floated over from Africa mm. and dancing on the beach to this to this music. Uh, went to a, a, a whole month of beach raves in 89 in Spain. And let me tell you, the music was was just exactly right for that. Mm-hmm. But I was so high. <laughs> and everyone around me was so high. We were so high. Uh, I don't know. I'm guessing they could have put on Phil Oaks or Mitch Miller, and you were probably so high that you still would have danced in Day Glow paint. They could have put on, you know, Whipped Cream and Other Delights. That's they a could good have record. Put, they could have put on <laughs> he- Henry Mancini's Baby Elephant Walk. <laughs> I would have thought it was the most amazing thing in the world. Because what's the- <laughs> I just, I'm sorry. Now I have the indelible image of you <laughs> dancing earnestly to Herb Alpert in the Tijuana Brass. They could have put Flight of the Bumblebees. <laughs> um, I, uh, uh, th- these beach raves were incredible things. They'd be like this grass hut. And they would they would truck out these massive speakers out on the beach, and then you would and then colored lights, and they would, you know, they would kind of paint everything this crazy dayglow paint, and then the drugs were, it was assumed that 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 everybody had drugs. Like there wasn't a uh, there was no hey man, have you got any drugs? It was very much like all right, here's the music, and now here are some drugs, and now here here is some liquor, and go. And so everybody was wasted, and you could go, you could walk out into the ocean, and the music was still loud. You could dance with the waves, and and we were young people then. There was touching. Hmm. There was a lot of touching. This is very. This sounds a lot like the '60s, John. It was a magical time, uh, and uh, you know that whole thing that happens in Ibiza for for the intervening twenty years. They've just been trying to recapture those experiences that mm-hmm. we a few bold pioneers intrepid pioneers had there in 89 i was a uh, i was just a, a, an accidental tourist through there you know i was on my own mission and came across this thing didn't realize it was a movement that was happening didn't realize it was that there were that, that that it was a sound i was just like wow drugs and girls mm-hmm. 
it kept me there. This is the this is this is frequently the way. It's certainly that way with the quote unquote summer of love, which if you do even the slightest bit of reading, you'll discover was maybe a month. There was about a month oh, yeah. that went from it's fun to smoke pot and neck to like every, to hate street has been ruined with heroin. It, it was a very, very short time. And then all, like you say, the tourists arrive. Like right. when you're in the moment of something like that and it doesn't have a name yet, you know, that's, that's exciting. But, <laughs> you know, the, the, now how did you know it was time to go? Oh, it was time to go because somebody that I met, somebody came along and was like, hey, you want to go to Morocco? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, this is... This thing here on the beach has been great, but um, it must be. It was like it was like everything when you're young. You think that I've never been to the south of Spain before. So once I got there, I and this was going on. I was like, oh, this must be what it's like in the south of Spain. A bunch of English kids listening to really loud music and and uh, tripping on ecstasy. I did. It didn't. It. I didn't know that it was just a. It was just a, a moment. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, so yeah, I, then I went to Morocco. I spent I spent a month there trying to. I got to Morocco and I and I decided that I was going to hitchhike to Mount Kilimanjaro. I had I I, I had just turned twenty one. I turned twenty one in Cadiz, Spain, and I was so I was twenty one and and two days old, and I'm in Morocco. And I say, I'm in Africa, and I'm going to hitchhike to Mount Kilimanjaro. And so off I go, and I stick out my thumb, and I I realize, you know, I'm going to have to take a couple of, like, of those African, or those Moroccan buses that are full of, like, the bus has a bunch of chickens in it, and then there are goats <laughs> tied to the roof. But so I spend two weeks going heading south in Morocco the whole time, like, yeah, I'm I'm going to Kilimanjaro and and uh, nobody's listening to me. <laughs> and I, I finally get I finally get down to the edge of the Sahara uh to a town called Warzazat. <laughs> and Warzazat is uh is is pretty far down there. Um on the on the other side of the on the other side of the mountains and kind of you know you're you are now at the at at the north edge of the desert and I, and and there are these trucks coming through this town that are headed across that are headed across the desert and i and i get it i get another i hitch another ride i get down to this little town called zagora and it's it's really the last it's really pretty close to the last town before the Sahara. And I'm I'm standing in this hotel and I'm talking to people. I'm like and 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 it's really a, it's an oasis, you know what I mean? Like it's desert 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 and then you come to this little town Zagora, little palm trees and a little and a, and there's a there's like a pond. It's like an oasis, like a proper pond in the desert with frogs and stuff. I'm talking to these guys in the hotel, these truck drivers and I'm like, you know, Hey, can I get a ride with you across the desert? And everybody laughs. I'm like, so I go to another group and I'm like, I'm trying to get across the desert. You know, can I, can I hitch a ride with you? Everybody laughs. And finally somebody, some, you know, some trucker grabs me by the shirt and he's like, do you realize how long this drive is across the desert? And he, you know, he draws a little map on a 
coaster. And he's like, here's Africa. Here's the Sahara. Here are we. And here's how long you've traveled in the last two weeks. You know, and it had taken me two weeks to go the length of a, his pinky fingernail. And he was showing me that the route across the desert was from the tip of his finger to his elbow. You know? <laughs> wow. And uh, he said, we carry, you know, we carry three weeks worth of water for each person. You know, and the trucks, these desert, these cr- trucks that cross the Sahara, are these, they're not just like semi-trucks. They're these massive, they have big tires, they're massive like desert um, dune buggy type of things. And so anyway, this trucker was like, there's no one that's ever going to pick up a hitchhiker in Zagora and travel with him two and a half weeks across the desert. Like we are, we are highly paid specialists and this is a massive undertaking. And you know, you're, you're just, you're way out of your league here. What kind of stuff are they trucking across that distance? So I'm I'm guessing not live animals. No, no, it's, you know, uh, like the town of Timbuktu is out there somewhere. There are, there are... The, the Timbuktu that we refer to as out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, the actual Timbuktu is in the center of, is on that road somewhere. And, you know, they, they, uh, they used to, all the people that live in that massive expanse of land used to get all their stuff by camel, camel caravan. And now they, now these trucks you know, provide the, provide a living to all those people in Mali. And I mean, God only knows. I, 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 I barely grasp it even now, the, the way that, the way the world works. But <laughs> I, I, so finally the, this whole trip I'd been taking across Morocco, I, I had not looked at a map. I just, I kept heading South and I figured I would, when I got to Kilimanjaro, I would know cause it was a mountain. And when I realized that, that, Africa is is so much bigger than I could have imagined, and that that trip would have been that was a that was a lifetime undertaking, and I was trying to make it, you know, while listening to the traveling Wilburys on my <laughs> on my waterproof Walkman or whatever. <laughs> that was that was one of like the five moments in my life when I realized that I was completely out of my depth, and and. Um, didn't just need to like go go back and regroup, but needed to really go back and think about how stupid I was. Like, put some serious thought into how stupid I was. And the problem was, I'm in Zagora, and now I'm at the edge of the Sahara, and I need to get back. I need to go back north, and nobody's going north. Everybody's going south. Nobody's going north. And I ended up having to... I ended up getting a cab in back in Warzazat, a guy with a cab. And we sat in the public square and negotiated, you know, for two hours with 25 little kids standing around us where he's like, all right, I'll take you. I'm not going back to Marrakesh, but I'll take you across, you know, like his mom or whatever lived over in, in, uh, over by the Algerian border or something like that. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll ride with you. And I'll get, it ended up being 40 bucks or something like that. Uh, but yeah, he drove me all the way. He drove me all the, oh, so it's just an incredible uh, journey of stupidity. 
So you were flying by the seat of your pants a lot of the time, though. You you weren't you weren't. You sounds like you have your knowledge of geography is obviously very strong, but you you it wasn't like uh, Indiana Jones. You see a plane flying through the air on a map thing. You didn't have an itinerary. You're just following your nose. No, absolutely following my nose. I did that for I did that for a long time, uh, and and the the great thing is that you can be somewhere. You can end up somewhere that you couldn't have planned to be. Like for instance, I was in Berlin the day the wall came down. You're kidding. No. You're Selig. No, yeah, well, yeah, maybe a little bit. I mean, I, I was, um, I've been a lot of places where the thing happened when I was there. I was in Oakland the day the Oakland fire started. Wow. And I was sitting at the breakfast table with, the, with this girl I knew, and she looked out of the window, and she was like, boy, the sky looks weird. And I looked out and said, yeah, I got it. it, it it's like orange. The sky is orange. It was you know, eight o'clock in the morning that morning. And we walked out in the yard and the whole hill above her house was on fire. And we jumped in the car. Oh, it was and so scary. It was amazing. We jumped in the car and of course, you know, with me behind the wheel and headed <laughs> toward it and drove up into the, up into Oakland until we came to, a, we came to a place where like waves of fire were going across the street and if we and to continue up the road, we would have had to have driven under fire. And we stopped and and suddenly realized that this wasn't like, hey, let's go up and look at the fire. It was that this was an absolutely uncontrolled conflagration and we were going to die. And we t- turned the car on and people were running, you know, like mm-hmm. people were running, holding their family pets. We turned around and headed back down the hill and with the fire like on our heels and got to a place where the fire department had blocked off the road after we'd gone past. So we had to get through their roadblock headed the other way, you know, in this massive stream of people. And over the course of the day, we, we moved three, four different times where we would get to a place and be like, okay, we're safe. And then the tidal wave of fire, Trees were exploding in the air. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. And that, you know, what was I doing there? Who knows? But, uh, but yeah, I was in Berlin in, in 89, the, the, the day they opened the wall. And it was just because I was, yeah, like I'd been in Florence a few days before and somebody said that we should go to Berlin and I went. That's insane. Yeah. But the, the, the problem with traveling that way is that sometimes you are one and a half blocks away from the world's largest ball of twine and you do, and you don't see it because you don't know that it's there because you never have opened a guidebook or looked you know so you you're just traveling by the seat of your pants and you and you actually miss some of the stuff that it would have been easy to see because you're just like oh I mean, you think how different that would be today i mean as soon as i arrive anywhere i, I have an iphone in my hand the whole time i'm somewhere you know, and I mean, not only am I relying on the maps, John, I'm relying on the little, let me hit the arrow twice to show me which direction to walk. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, and then well, I, I, and even then I realized I just walked the wrong way. The Starbucks is the other way. Some of that stuff, like when I was out in, in, uh, in, you know, in Zagora or <laughs> certainly when I was walking across Europe. Just for reference, I'm going to have, we're going to get an intern. I'm going to have them go back and Google every one of these fake cities that you talk about. <laughs> Are you not writing these down on, on three by five cards anymore? I don't hear the three by five cards flapping. In I, the- I, I can't, I can't keep up anymore. 
I still got, still, got, still got something over here about Roy Thomas Baker, but I, I'm I, at Zagora. I started glazing over. <laughs> <laughs> what is Azat? Now that's a hell of a town. Yeah, great little town. <laughs> if you're in there ever in the neighborhood. Yeah. But what's amazing is that during all those times, like there were weeks, weeks and weeks at a time when I was completely out of touch with the world. I didn't. Wait, I wait, you, must have, you have such a strange personality. Full stop. But it's, it's, it's so interesting to me, like that you can like be okay with that much, uh, lack of roots. You know, I mean, and that, I'm not, I'm not even saying just compared to me, we're like, you know, I like to make an appointment to go to the bathroom. Like, yeah. for, like, it's just amazing to me that you could be on the road so long, uh, you know, not knowing when the next meal is, not knowing, like, I, I think you, well, I think that's, that's a little crazy. It's amazing. I mean, you know, in, in one case, obviously you, you realize you can't ride across a desert, but man, that's, that it's, I don't say reckless, but it's certainly very adventurous. Well, the, the greatest thing that ever happened to me or the most mind-flipping thing that ever happened was I, I was sleeping in a park in, um, in Avignon, France, mm-hmm. which is the site of uh, the song Sur le Pont d'Avignon. Also where, oh, they, where the Demoiselles live. That's where the Demoiselles live. There were popes there for a little bit. Yeah, they had a whole second pope deal going there. A little second pope town. But I was sleeping in a park in that town, and I woke up, and there was a man standing over me in the in the dark and i looked to my left and i realized that my bag was gone my bag had been stolen shit and this guy was standing over me and he was clearly trying to he was bending over trying to figure out how to get what he knew was probably my passport and my money which was around my neck and i jumped you know i squirted out of this bag like a like a like jello coming out of a you know, a squeezed jello squirter, like jello coming out of a jello squirter. And this guy starts running and I start running after him in my bare feet. And we run and run and run all over Avignon. We're running over, running on the, on the little freeway. We're running down by the river where I'm chasing this guy and I'm swearing at him. And he's, he's, he's staying just in front of me the whole time. And, and finally he jumps over a, uh, like a metal retaining, a metal like barrier on a highway. He he leaps over this thing, and I leap and I catch my toe right on the edge of it and it's slam down on the ground. I'm all bloody and he gets away. And I go back to my little place where I'd been sleeping, and there's nothing left. They came and took my sleeping bag while I was. Chasing oh my the sky. god! And fuck Avignon. Yeah, it's well, you know, uh, France has there's there's a, there are a lot of people in France. That's true. But in any case, so I'm walking around. I do have my. They did leave my shoes, and I can only think that they <laughs> left my shoes as a gesture of human kindness. You know what I mean? Bonamy. Like, that's right. They could have taken the shoes too, but they left the shoes as a as like, hey, we're not animals. We're not monsters. <laughs> it's not Germany. <laughs> so I'm limping around. I'm all. Now let I'm me just all, be clear. He he he, he, he he was able to nab the thing around your neck, so you're passportless and moneyless. And no, bagless? no, he, he was not able to nab. Oh, you just want you just want to kick his ass. I was going to kick his ass. I was going to get this guy, and I was going to beat him to within an inch of his life. Teach him a French lesson. And probably, if I had caught him, he would have knifed me with what he surely had in his hand, which was surely a stiletto. Like I was stupid to chase him. Uh, and while I was chasing him, his friends came and stole my sleeping bag. And probably the guys that had my backpack were standing 25 feet away uh, in the opposite direction. 
And I should have gone and chased them instead, but I didn't see them. I just saw this guy and I was like, you. But in any case, I spent a few days walking around Avignon, now without a sleeping bag at night, looking in all the trash cans and, you know, and down all the embankments and under all the bushes for them having stripped everything out of my bag, but like the last, because there were some journals. I was hoping they'd thrown the journals in the garbage. I wanted to get get my journals at least. Mm-hmm. Never found anything. <coughs> <clears throat> but I had my passport and I had uh, I had the money that I had around my neck and I had some people that I was supposed to meet I was supposed to meet some people what was the story I was supposed to meet some people in Madrid in like eight days some people I had met earlier that were like meet us in Madrid on the 15th or something I was like alright I'll meet you in Madrid on the 15th so I was in Avignon and I just was like, well, I'm not going to replace all that stuff. And I just started traveling with the clothes on my back. Jeez. And, you know, and I was, obviously I was covered with like blood for a while, but I washed <laughs> the blood out of the clothes and eventually my, my scabs healed. And for another <laughs> five months, I traveled all around Europe uh, in, in just the clothes on my back. And I probably smelled terrible. I mean, I would wash my clothes in the sink at youth hostels and stuff and hang them up to dry. And then in the morning, I'd, they'd still be a little damp. I'd put them on and, and they'd be dry in an hour. And it was the most liberating experience of my life. I mm-hmm. had never, I did not realize how free you could be. I would, I would fall asleep on a train or I'd fall asleep on a park bench or whatever. And I'd wake up and just stand up and start walking because I had nothing... There was no like here. Let me get my stuff, or let me pack my sleeping bag back in its in its bag, uh, and it, that was great, and it worked quite well until winter came, mm-hmm. and then I was screwed. But the thing that you're talking about uh, about um, about just casting yourself loose in the world, the, the 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 people I've admired the most were the ones that were able to take it further than I was able to do. Which were that they that they severed their attachments, their mental attachments, to home, which I had ne- was never able to do. I, I wanted. You mean they, they didn't have a, a home base, or it didn't matter that they didn't have a home base. That, that that somehow they either pretended very well, or they truly did not ever want to go see their mom mm-hmm. again. They never, they never dreamt of going back, going home to see their mom and having Christmas at home with their mom. And no matter how far out I would get and no matter how much I was out sleeping under a tree somewhere and by all appearances, like just if somebody had come along and said, come with me to Abu Dhabi, I would have said, absolutely, here we go. As I'm sitting there under the tree, I'm thinking, I'm like dreaming of home, you know? And it was a mental connection to to home that I couldn't sever. Hmm. And the people that, were, that, that I saw out there when, when I was living at, uh, that close to the edge, I guess, if you, you know, the edge of, of being like, uh, 
outside of civilization. Um, the people that I admired that I would meet sometimes who, who had a look of like, of, of real dastardly self-possession. I don't, I didn't sense in them that they had any desire to ever go home. Why, why would you envy that? Because I, because I didn't, because I kept feeling like I was tethered or that I wasn't, that I, that I, that I wasn't brave enough to, um, to sever that connection, you know? And in, in a way it might be that that connection is what saved it, saved my life multiple times. It's why I never did intravenous drugs. Uh, because there were a lot of things that I could, there were a lot of things that I did that I did not that that connection to home didn't interfere with my choice to do bad things, but there were certain bad things I never did. I did not ever steal. I didn't ever, you know, like there were, there were uh, uh, to, to live that life and, and yet to have a, a, a personal prohibition on ever stealing, like shoplifting a thing of yogurt or whatever I, was beneath my dignity. And that was because of this idea of home that I had and, you know, particularly of one day walking back in through the front door of my mother's house. And I think it's, it saved me multiple times, but at the time I recognized it was the thing that kept me from being truly wild, all the way wild. Mm -hmm. And those people that were all the way wild, uh, I really, you know, I really admired them sitting around the campfires with them and seeing that look in their eye. Uh, and and that might have been a put on too, you know. The, I don't, uh, people are capable of putting that look. But on it's, it's what's, what you're describing, though, is uh, and this could be the same thing. This might be a false dilemma. But on the one hand, you're talking about something very close to monasticism, or or this right. idea of uh, being free of uh, I don't want to say uh, attachment is maybe too Buddhist of a word, but being being free of of the um, of the yearning. Uh, for for things, not, mm -hmm. not 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 only not missing it, but not finding yourself, you know, yearning for the things you miss. But on the other end, you're talking about fucking psychopaths, right? There is, and you're absolutely right. That's very is. natural. It's a very. I would. Ha I mean, maybe I'm just in a in a middle aged American, which I am. But it seems like that desire to have uh, a place in the tribe uh, goes way beyond, you know, people who are born in the '60s. That that's a pretty old idea. Yeah, and that was precisely why I wanted to get away from it. You know, the line between being a great monk, between being like a true monk and being a total psychopath is a pretty nebulous line. You know, the the great the great mystics are all reviled in their in their own time. You know, well, a lot of them are fucking nuts, too. Well, a lot of them are nuts and a lot of them are burned at the stake for being nuts, but they're but but a but the work that they do, the mystical work that they do, pushing, pushing on behalf of all people outward, always outward. Mm -hmm. Two generations later, we revere them and we read their writings right, and we right. think that they are that they were the great that they that they were the great leaders. And in fact, in their own time, they were you know they were chased out of the village. Um, so. I, you know, I didn't have a 60s affectation past a certain point. I wasn't trying to, like, go further. I just meant, I just meant people of our, of our generation. And, you oh, know, sure. Some... And, and, then, and that was the impetus initially. Like, hey, man, let's go. Was there any kind of, like, a Beats sort of 
influence? No, no, no. I hated all that shit. Is that at, right? For not very long. I mean, I liked Paul Bowles. And, um, I, have no, I have no idea who that is. Paul Bowles. He wrote uh, The Sheltering Sky. Oh, okay. But, but he, wrote, uh, he wrote a lot of great short stories, and he translated a lot of... Um, he translated from Arabic a lot of sort of folk tales uh, as told to him by his Moroccan houseboy, Muhammad, uh, Muhammad Marabit, who was this uh, sort of great, ended up being this great Moroccan writer. Uh, but, but, but no, I was the, the beats and all that stuff. It just, that, that, that all seemed very like, look, look back, look, look back at itself. And I just wanted to see what the limits were, you know? But like and, all those things, again, it's, it's like the hippies or it's like any of that stuff. Or even for that matter, people's obsession with something like monasticism in, in a religious context. And, you know, just in the same way that you couldn't keep dancing on the, on the beach in Spain. I mean, I, you know, people's attachment to that kind of stuff, even though it ends up being attachment to a kind of freedom. I mean, mm. it's like being attached to like the Thanksgiving dinner you had in 1988. It's gone. Like that's yeah. not, it's not a thing anymore. You're not going to, you're not going to recreate that. And that's where you get into somebody like me, I guess, in the tourism, you know, like, like heroin tourism. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like you're, it's such a difference to be somebody who travels in order to, like, okay, here's the classic example. And I, I've certainly been guilty of this everywhere I've ever gone. Somebody comes to San Francisco, and what do they say? They say, well, we're going to go to Fisherman's Wharf. Uh, you know, we're going to... Ghirardelli chocolates. Sure, sure. You go and, and Alcatraz, you work that all into one five-day adventure. Oh. <laughs> you know, and you know, I, I'm, I'm not a native San Franciscan, but, but in, the, in the most, you know, useful way I can, I try to say, well, you should do that stuff and get your photos and stuff, but really, I would not block out more than half a day for that. Alcatraz, super fun. But really, there's, when you go to any of those piers, you're going to get the same experience with slightly different weather and slightly different clothes. It's the same experience you would get in a touristy part of Gatlinburg or a touristy <laughs> part of Fort Myers. Like, you're getting the international tourist experience there. It's just right. that there's crab and it's kind of costly. But that's the thing. If you come to San Francisco, and again, I don't want to say don't go see the Golden Gate Bridge. It's fucking amazing. But, you know, that's, there's a certain kind of approach to that stuff where that wanderlust reads as i want to get my picture taken at the eiffel tower right versus like i'm gonna you know go ask some guy who's making maps with his thumbnail if he can drive me to a giant mountain <laughs> but, and now today though here's the funny thing like i don't know if it's too too much of a contrast but now today you're a man who collects candles yeah and i think about that all the time uh at, at some point along the way i realized and and what happened was i realized that citizenship this was the this was the big moment for me that citizenship is an all in proposition, and you see this all the time with with um, with young people, uh, not just the street punks. Street punks are on one sort of side of the of of this bell curve. Street punks all the way up to hippie hippie dippy, you know, I don't wear leather shoes sort of people. <laughs> people who are trying to they are trying to limit the number of ways in which they are fully vested in their citizenship, right? They say, yes, I agree that we should have driver's licenses. This is the Tea Party problem, right? I agree that we should have driver's licenses, but I don't agree that I should have to have insurance. You know, they're trying to, they're trying to set their own line somewhere in the sand where they, on one side of the line are all the citizenship things that they personally agree to and then on the other side of the line are all these other citizenship things that they feel are you know 
unnecessary or restri- too restrictive or for whatever reason they they choose not to they choose they choose to think that they don't have to play and there was a moment for me because i lived without id for many years <laughs> and i lived in the city and i didn't have id so i could not go into bars i could not i did not have a bank account when a policeman stopped me, I had to explain that I didn't have ID and get the inevitable lecture from the guy. Uh, they never, you know, they they never took me. Are you in. allowed to not have an ID? Can't you be arrested for not presenting identification? Yeah, you can be. You're not allowed to. But when a cop stops you for something and you don't have ID, it's really low on his list of priorities. Like I'm going to take this kid to, to jail for no ID. So you get a stern talking to. You need ID. It's important. You need to go get some identification. You know, because I could verify my identity to them. It would take us 45 minutes of me explaining who I was and telling you my social security number and all this stuff, you know, like, but in the long run, I did not have ID because I had drawn the line somewhere on, on how much I was willing to participate in, in my, in the civilization I was living in. And I had this moment where I I was watching someone else, uh, a person I knew who was, you know, very much like opposed to the cops and opposed to the laws and opposed to the man. and, And this person, you know, encountered some difficulty at one point and called the police to come help them and bitched about the police response. (laughs) and then when the police got there they whined to the police and the police were like yeah you're kind of you kind of made your bed in this situation but sure we'll look for the guy that you know stole your weed that did you wrong right that's my favorite when you call the cops because the weed got stolen we'll look for the guy that stole your weed exactly and then they leave and this person commences to like talking shit about the cops again and i realized if you're if you are living outside if you want to live outside and uh, of the of the rules if you don't want to follow all the rules then you should then you should also not have any recourse to the benefits you can't call the cops if someone steals your weed and if you sit and talk shit about the cops then don't call them and of course no one is wi- i mean the people that are willing that truly do live outside the world and when somebody beats the shit out of them and steals all their stuff, they don't call the cops because they recognize that the cops will never help them. They're truly outside the world. Those people live, live desperate lives. And if you're not willing, if you're not willing to live at the, at the edge of desperation, you're, really your only other option is to be fully vested as a citizen. Hmm. You need to have, if you have a driver's license, you need to have insurance. If you, you know, if you... You're saying, are, I mean, so you're saying it's not a buffet. In the same way in, in the uh, marathon four hours that we cut out of, a, of our discussion once before, it's not a buffet, you're saying. Right. You can't come in and pick that this is what I decided to be an adamantly um, evangelistic about, and right. this is the part that I've decided it, uh, is too inconvenient. Yeah, exactly. You cannot, you cannot refuse to pay your taxes and still drive on the roads and bridges. Mm-hmm. You know, you cannot, you cannot say that, that we shouldn't, that if you don't have kids, you shouldn't pay taxes for the schools. Uh, 
and then walk down the street and complain about the about the youth of America or whatever. Like the the decisions about about uh, what constitutes full membership in in society, those decisions are not being made by one person up above who's like, here are the rules you have to follow. It, the, those are decisions that we have made collectively as a group of people over many, many, many hundreds of years. And it's like, this is just what, it, it's a lot of responsibility to be a fully vested human being. And it it requires all this stuff. And it isn't a buffet. You You... If you live in the culture, you do. You have to do all the stuff, and you're not a rebel by refusing to do by refusing to do one thing from column A and refusing to do one thing from column B. You know, it isn't. You're not a rebel. You're just being a brat. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and and you you can if you don't like paying taxes, you can absolutely make your case in the public square, but you cannot refuse to pay them. Mm-hmm. It isn't an option, and you are a brat if you think that it is an option. You're just being a baby. So, and and I came to that understanding um, by living with thieves for for a long time, living living uh, not all the way out, still attached to home. You know, not all the way out. Where if the cops, if some if somebody beat me up, I wouldn't call the cops. And not only that, but the cops would beat me up. You know, I wasn't living all the way out. I was living on the fringe with 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 people that were also living on the fringe but but they still sucked off of civilization and I and I found it I found it disgusting ultimately I think you might be lawful neutral <coughs> I always thought I always thought lawful neutral was one of the most interesting alignments because there, you know, there's always uh, you get a lot of lawful good. Like if you're going to be a paladin, you got to be lawful good. Got to be lawful good. If you're going to thief, thieves, a lot of thieves end up being chaotic good, right? Um, or uh, what is it? Uh, you know what I mean? Like there's all these different alignments. But I always thought lawful neutral was really interesting because it wasn't really a matter of obviously of good of good or evil. It was a matter of like you know. You know what I'm saying? I always thought that it was very interesting that, like, it sounds like what you're describing is, in a weird way, even though you are an outsider in many of your ways, you're saying that if you take part of the system, you take the whole system. And that is, in some sense, the law. I don't know if you would call that ethics. Maybe ethics would be a better word for it. But you're saying you you got to buy into the whole system. Yeah, but that I think that is a lawful, neutral r- revelation that I had within the context of being ultimately chaotic good. That's what I always like to think I was. Chaotic good. A lot of dickheads are chaotic good. Well, I may be, I may be vulnerable to that. No, no, I'm talking about myself. I'm talking about myself. Oh, chaotic good is what uh, is the most passive aggressive alignment you could choose to give yourself. Really? Don't you think? No, I think that I think using the word good. I think this is this is something. This is a very key distinction. Uh, People have mistaken the word good for being synonymous with the word nice. Oh, well, I was just talking mostly in D&D terms. But, well, but no, yeah, no, no, but, as in, but as, as in life, I think a chaotic good guy walks around going, hey, you know, I'm a handful, but I'm a nice guy. No, I think, I think good, I think good is, is perhaps one of the most powerful words in the English language. Mm. Like, good is not something that you seek. Good is not nice. Like good is the pursuit of of 
Oh, like a capital, like a capital G good. Yeah, what you understand to be truth. Mm -hmm. And if you are pursuing good and seeking it it, it, by any means necessary, that that is how you get chaotic. But but you are chasing after you are chasing after the good, Hmm. and that is often very counter to what to nice because. In a situation where you are, where you aspire to being good, you can be in a social situation, which we often are, where the social currency is one of really compromised ethics. You know, everybody in the group is getting along great. They're all really nice people. But you know what? They're all kind of liars. And the, there is a tremendous premium put on just going along with the lie going along with the lie that they're telling themselves, going along with the lie that is happening at this party, going along with the overall lie that is governing our modern culture, you know? And to be, to truly be good, you have to stand in that group of people and say, no, I will not, I do not agree with your lie. I do not, I will not participate in your lie passively just in order to make this a happy party Mm -hmm. or to make everybody feel fine. And it's, it's, I feel like a lot of times I am accused of being uh, an asshole or being a, being a caustic presence because I, in every situation I try and I try and stay the course of what I think is my own ethical responsibility and that is the pursuit of what is good not the pursuit of what is nice but doesn't that? But um, it sounds like, uh, and I, 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 we, we, I don't want to get into one of those things. I have to cut out. But, but, but I'm curious though, because you're 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 very um, you're tough on people who are inside of a system and don't adopt the whole system. Mm-hmm. Um, are, what systems are you a hundred percent bought into that you would that you accept a hundred percent of? Oh well, and that's the thing: the system of law that governs us right. is deeply flawed. Well, it's also, it, and it's also, for as men from Alaska, you must certainly realize it is also very contradictory. It's very po- paradoxical. There's, there's two very different threads in, in our great American uh, history and culture that all, along the way are keep running, in, keep running into each other, right? The sense of the Wild West and exploration and the sense of fair play, right? right? And a sense of profit motive, of course. So there's a lot of things you can account for by picking which one of those directions you think is the good. Well, sure. You, uh, and recognizing that the good doesn't really lie in any one of those directions, but those are all that those are all necessities, or they are all like you are you can pursue the good while living within these systems, but you can't, you know. And there and there are absolutely laws that I that I uh, do not deign to follow. You know what I mean? There, I make those choices all the time. Individual laws that I say in this instance, I'm going to break this law because. Because I know better, um, and that is kind of the that's where that idea breaks down. But but within the within the concept of like uh, of government and the 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 way that our the way that our society runs, the appeal to authority, the 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 bureaucracy mm-hmm. that keeps the lights on, that keeps the that when you flush the toilet it. It goes away and doesn't just empty out into the garden. Like all that stuff, I take as I take as a whole system, and I don't, I don't brook a lot of like. Well, I don't, I don't pay my share of that because I don't because I disagree with the 
put with the woman that got appointed to that job or whatever. Mm-hmm. Be, zooming back, yeah, I want to be. I want to always aspire to make the good choice rather than the expedient choice, and that often is in conflict with the law. That is a that is a a paradox. Um, and you know, at, at two o'clock in the morning, if I'm sitting at a red light. And I look both directions and there's no car coming. I, I, I go through the light. It is a choice. You're late for dinner with Ben Gibbard. It is a choice. It is a choice that I routinely make that there are traffic laws that at a certain hour of the day in certain situations, traffic laws go from being uh, laws to being suggestions. Well, I'll, I'll take that one to the next level. And here's the one that I think this is not necessarily a person that I admire, but it's someone I kind of admire. And that's somebody who would say in that instance, like, arrest me all you want. This is just a thing I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I think is kind of, it, it's the, maybe not the opposite, but it's very, it's very different from somebody saying, uh, you know, I hate the police except for when somebody breaks in and steals my figurines or something like that. You know what I mean? Uh, there's something interesting and dangerous about the, the the true like conscientious objector who says, you know, I, I'm I'm breaking this law. I know I'm breaking this law, and uh, I don't even have to give you a reason why. And the system can feel free to just chew me up in its gears because that's the decision that I've made. I think that's a very interesting and potentially dangerous to society kind of person. Not, I'm, not, I'm not judging that, but I'm just saying that's the kind of person everybody's relying on people to at least hope they don't get caught. But if you truly are that kind of somebody with nothing to lose, sort of as you were describing it, I mean, that's somebody that society just has no idea how to deal with. Yeah, it's a, it, 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 they, fill the, they fill a kind of monastic role. They're the people that, that sit Indian style in the public square and pour gasoline on themselves and, and immolate themselves to protest the bombing of Laos. Um, in America, of course, nobody, nobody immolates themselves really that much. Um, but, but the conscientious objector, like that is again, like I, like you're saying, I admire them, uh, I admire them above all else. And it's not, not always because I, I, um, admire what they, what, what they're after, but, but that, you know, that's nonviolent resistance. That's Gandhi. That's Martin Luther King. Uh, it's why I don't admire the, the tea party. So much because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of talk of violent resistance in that group of people and violent overthrow is a thing that, you know, when it's time for violent overthrow, everybody knows it. It's not a thing that you, it's not a thing that you sit out in the, in your little hut. Well, and the other thing is like, I've always said this about social media that, and, uh, that, that social media is not what, what you have to say, it's what other people have to say about you. And people who are really interested in violence, I wonder how interested they are in the violence if they were to think about it as 10 times more violence on them and their family uh, than they had thought of. It isn't a matter of you going out with a gun and acting like a big shot. Like, imagine your family getting their throat slit in the night. That's violence. Right. Violence is not your fantasy from watching cable TV and buying a gun. Violence is you're completely out of control and there's no one there to help you. That's, that's violence. Right, and that gets lost on a lot of people. But if you're going to talk about the Tea Party, then I'm going to talk about fast food activism. 
because mm, uh, yeah, we, that's probably a, no, no, no. That's probably huh. a different thing. But that's 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 what gets me is just the, the the piousness that people have about this supposed desire for change that mainly comes down to what they put on uh, Twitter. That that I I cannot hide the fact that that drives me completely insane. I don't know how that fits into your worldview about about the. Uh, the the um, cohesiveness of, of buying into the system, but man, when you well, talk about fil- change and you talk about trying to make something better, it's just I, that feels so at odds. There are certainly lots of cases where that has made a difference, but I think by and large, it is so cheapened the idea that if you care a lot about something, you can see change affected by direct action. Yeah, Coney, two thousand twelve. <laughs> what's what's that? <laughs> That's that. That's that. Uh, oh, ha- I, I'm. You know, for just half a second, I got kind of hungry because I thought you were talking about having a chili dog. Yeah, Coney dog, uh, Coney Island. I think it's a failure. I protest of imagination. for Coney dogs. Yeah, I would do. Give me a Coney dog right now. Mm-hmm. It's a failure of people's imaginations to imagine the worst case scenario personally. You know, which is something that that you have done. <laughs> it's something that I have done my whole life what if my what if my big plan actually worked out how would that go <laughs> right exactly what if, how would that really you know like two months later what is that going to look like and <clears throat> you know it's a very popular thing in the popular in the in the youth culture now to think about zombies the it's a war of you against the zombies so, the problem with zombies is once you start thinking about them it's hard to stop thinking about them that's it in my is. experience i'm a pretty i'm a pretty i like to think i'm a pretty rational person but just even a little bit of exposure to, to zombies gets me thinking about zombies you start thinking about zombies i don't love it. i don't love it but i mean it's it's the kind of thing where uh you know, I think I think we, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people enjoy uh, the occasional apocalyptic scenario. Certainly, mm-hmm. it's a great feature of speculative fiction that I've enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I think once you start thinking about zombies, boy, because they don't care, they don't fucking care. They're zombies. They're literally zombies. Right. Right. Boy, and- that idea, though, right there, you know, and this is again like all of the great, uh, I don't know, sci-fi, speculative fiction, whatever you want to call it, like all the best stuff. You know, it's a, it's a way of telling a story about something you otherwise could not have told a story about. Not always. Not always. Sometimes it's about spaceships. You know what I mean? But that, that, that's what makes this kind of thing so great. And in that instance, you talk about violence. Well, here's some violence. Here's somebody that you, you, can't, you can't explain things to. And, and we don't like people that we can't reason with and we, or we can at least try to bring to our point of view. But, but also somebody who's just not even receptive to I- any plea that you have about why they should not eat your brain. Yeah, that's that's a very troubling idea, and that that you know, and that they really are just such a simple machine, and that's that sounds silly in sci-fi, and I guess it is, but isn't that ultimately what we fear with something like like a like a police state or something? You know what I mean? Like ultimately, sure, what we fear, all. yeah, well, we fear we fear like uh, loosely organized violence, you know, uh, from people that can't be dissuaded that it's a bad idea. Well, it's the fantasy that that uh, suburban whites have about inner city blacks that they are. That you can't reason with them. This is why everybody should watch The Wire. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I know that's a, I know that's a cheap white guy thing to say, but the stuff that you're talking about—that's you know—I I was in my 40s before that really hit me over the head. That everybody's corrupted by a system. You know what I mean? It's it's from the first the opening scene of The Wire. If you watch the DVD with the commentary, so what really struck me about it is the guy saying that The Wire is ultimately about a, the American city. Yeah, they asked that. What's his name? David Simon or whatever. They, you know, in a recent interview, they ask him, "Well, who's your?" You know, people ask him who's his favorite character on The Wire, and he says, "Absolutely, the city of Baltimore." Because it is this living thing, and everybody in it is getting fucked up by some system. And if you think being a cop is making you any less fucked up by a system than somebody who's selling um, selling drugs on the corner, 
you, ha- you have no idea how complex this stuff is. Everybody's right. fucked up by somebody. It's why I love, it's why I spend so much time down watching the, the, the container freight being unloaded off the ship and put on trucks. I find that very relaxing. It's, it's incredible. And, I, and I, I, for many years, I have gone and parked down and watched the containers come off the ships, get put on trucks and drive away or get put on trains and drive away. And in, in, uh, in following, we've talked about this before, but, you know, in the process of watching this happen, I've then like said, where are those trucks going? And I followed them. And I've said, where are those trains going? And I've followed them. And I see the route they take out of the city. And I see the places that they stop on the way. And in the process of, of that whole experience, I've got just, a, just the tiniest little thread of how complicated that system of moving goods is around the country mm-hmm. and around the world. And how everything in my, in my room here at some point has, a, has, has been has gone into that stream and come out of it and sometimes gone into that stream and come out of it multiple times and understanding that that is in some ways, you know, like whatever you say about capitalism, in some ways that is a, that is a neutral system. You know, it is just an organic system. It's, it is like a river. Um, I can't look at anything without thinking about it. And the, the wire has a, a similar kind of, at a certain point, you, you the the morality you what what you the morality that you brought into watching that show is not the morality that you take out of having watched that show where what was what what is right and what is wrong what is what is ultimately good and what is not good you know are are forever kind of flipped by your experience of like oh wow i thought that guy was the hero and it turns out he's the villain oh wow i thought that guy was the Right. That's, that's really helped by best. coming into it thinking it's going to be a police procedural or like right. you know a cops and robber story you know of some kind but that's true of every aspect of a city you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it, as an environmentalist you look at trucks and you think trucks are polluting truck drivers are 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 cowboys you know they, you talk to people all the time that are like i hate truckers or you know why can't we why can't we make everything run on propane <laughs> Or why, you know, it's a simple matter to just switch over to solar power. What, you know, you, you, there are so many people making value judgments about things. And, and when, but they have no idea, like, how complicated this system is, how difficult it is to change, how entrenched it is, first of all. But, on this, uh, uh, but secondly, like, how massive it is, mm-hmm. how many people there are, how many oster blenders there are right now being trucked from somewhere to somewhere else for people to make smoothies and and what what all goes into that i mean it 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 uh it boggles the mind you can't read the newspaper without without ultimately every article takes you back to that at a certain point every article in the newspaper takes you back to that dock every article in the newspaper if you if you let your imagination go takes right. you back to the guy who's working at the plant where your poo goes and sits in various pools until the bacteria eat the poo and then they dump it kind of still a little bit poo water. Like you wouldn't (laughs) drink it, but it's not poo water so bad that they can't just dump it into the ocean. It's non-potable. It's non-potable, but it's, but once it goes in the ocean, the little ocean bacteria eat the remaining poo 
Mm. And then it's then it's nature, right? Nature is just basically poo uh, uh, of different colors. And that guy, you know, that 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 waste treatment plant that no one wants to think about the waste treatment plant. Nobody wants to think about no one wants to put themselves in a little ship and follow their poo. And and yet, you know, if that system broke down for one hour, we would all be up to our necks in poo. And protesting. And we'd be so mad. Mm-hmm. And we'd be refusing to pay our taxes. And we would be like, this is a, this is a, and it's just like, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's amazing that, that all of our systems, all of our little capillaries, that the blood keeps flowing in them. Right. And, and, you know, think about you uh, wanting to hitch a ride to Mount Kilimanjaro. And in retrospect, that seems, based on what you're describing, you realize that that sounds a little silly. I was a free radical. Because <laughs> you didn't have all the information that you needed. Well, you know, I, like, I, I think it's like a lot of people who are middle-aged. I, I, I know just enough to know what's stupid and not enough to know what's smart. Uh, but, but one thing I know is, uh, I think, uh, probably a little bit, if not stupid, at least a little bit short-sighted, is the failure to understand that everything in life is an engineering problem. And mm. I, I honestly, this you know, we we I I don't know how much we see eye to eye politically, but uh, I'll just say that I think the the biggest common problem in you know and you know I prefer to say civics rather than politics. To me, politics is theater. To me, it's in civics, the idea that there are things we want to improve, and you can think about that as government. You can think about that as getting potholes fixed. You can think about that as trying to get people to stop letting their dogs shit in the park. Whatever, however you want to think about that, but it all comes down to one basic problem. And until you address this problem, it's very difficult to get anything done with anything except raw power which most mm. of us don't have. And mm. that is the problem that you can't change one factor about anything. Mm. And all, to me, when I look at almost all, and this is, I blame this completely on my stupid fucking liberal arts education that taught me to realize how things can be wrong and not always figure out how they can be right. What I do know is you can't change one thing about anything. Right. I'm not an engineer. I, I, but all I know is that there are several factors that go into a plane staying in the air. You can't change one of those factors. And mm. if you want to change one factor about anything in your life, and you focus very heavily on that, and that could be that you're against abortion, it could be that you're against dog poop, it could be mm. you're against trucks, it could be that you're pro-vegetarian shoes, mm. it's not good, it's not bad, it's just life. That if you change, if you fetishize one thing that should change without taking into account what else happens— you're going to have unexpected consequences. There are numerous, numerous examples in civics and in nature of all of these things happening all the time. And that's what I think, that's what drives me crazy. I mean, how could you ever categorically say everybody should carry a gun? How could you categorically say nobody should ever have an abortion? How could you categorically say no one should ever let their dog shit in the park? Well, I hate dog shit in the park, but if somebody's got to run, run, run home to go take care of somebody who's sick and their dog takes a shit while they're running... That yeah, that's mm. that's an, that might be an edge case. All I'm saying is that when the when the political stuff heats up and the civics melts down, it's frequently because we can't agree on the one thing that we want to change. And if we do try to change that one thing, we don't account for all the knock on effects of everything else that gets fucked up because of it. Right. Okay. I, that's and I think that's absolutely true. In even in your interpersonal or intrapersonal experience, oh, like, ten times. Yes. When you start to think about like I need to change this about myself. I need to really look at this thing about myself, you know. You can never do that in isolation. You can never you can never separate out 
right. the, the part of you that you want to change, make the change, and then put it back in. Well, if you spend eight hours a day drinking and say, I'm going to quit drinking, you're not accounting for the fact that you have eight <laughs> open hours in the day now. <clears throat> if, and let's, let's put a fine point on it. If you say, if you, if you say, to, uh, if you say to someone in your family, I, I don't want to say wife because I wouldn't want to say, sound like it's this, but let's say you say... No, you say don't say anything to your wife. <laughs> never talk to your wife. That's the biggest engineering problem. No, in the doghouse. No, but think about this. Think about you finally get the stones to say, say to somebody, like, could you please stop chewing with your mouthful? Something mm-hmm. that simple. It's been driving you crazy for years. You know what? Even if they did that, you might have solved the problem you meant to solve, which was to get them to stop making a noise that bugged you. Would have been easier for you to not mind it, but now you've created a much larger problem, which is you sound like a dick. Oh. Hmm. And wow. you might make them self-conscious. I'm not saying that's good, bad, or indifferent. I'm just saying that's a really fucking simple example. If you say truck drivers are bad and we don't truck get trucks anymore, how are you going to get your vegetarian shoes delivered? That's right. Vegetarian shoes come on trucks just they like they come every on cast. something. I mean, unless unless you've unless you've got some way to have like a you know a green camel that doesn't poop in the park and 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 votes pro, you know, choice. How how are, how is that stuff going to happen? The system is not as simple. And you know what? You know why I'm, I'm hot about this, John? Because this is exactly the fucktard that I was for like 30 years. I really hmm. did think it was this simple. I thought yeah. it was as simple as going and buying a T-shirt with a slogan on it that had probably been produced with tiny little Vietnamese fingers, and I bought it in some kind of a, you know, I ordered it online and had it delivered to my house. Well, everybody our generation does. They read Manufacturing Consent, or they read Howard Zinn, and they come out of that Go ahead, experience. say it, Kunstler. Go ahead. You can say it. <laughs> they come out of that Go ahead. Experience. Go after Kunstler. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't provoke you. And they stand they stand on the in the square of their university and they look at the person standing next to them who is insufficiently enlightened and they go, "Oh my god, are you really wearing those leather shoes?" Like, do you know that the cow, that cows produce more methane than a thousand gas generators? But not as much as you, sir. <laughs> and you go, "Oh boy." Here we go. You know, that that kind of, you know, that kind of, like, lame brain activism. All, go, all I know is I cannot find a fucking 200-watt light bulb to save my life. John, my vision is dim. <laughs> my vision is dim, and I like a bright fucking room. And now I'm walking around with these little, these little few silly light bulbs oh, to put off just enough light to make everybody... I, don't, I shouldn't get started on light bulbs. All I know is everybody I know looks like they have jaundice. Don't tell me the color temperature is getting better. It's not. They're still heinous. Yeah. And you know what the difference... You know what? Can I tell you what the difference between a 100-watt incandescent light bulb is in a 200 watt it's not twice it's all the difference in the world it's fucking lightning <laughs> and the lightning bug 200 watts i can see everything that's happening can yeah. i just say can i just say if rtb had had his t- photo taken with the proper lighting he, he would look a lot better he'd look a lot like l- he'd a lot fucking less like he's got one big black shadow i'm sorry african-american shadow behind him yeah you i know, just the, the picture of me people. that's on wikipedia are you got a wikipedia thing the picture of me on there it, it's like i i i'm in texas I've been sweating for four days. I haven't oh, yeah. taken a shower. I look. It's like of all the pictures that could be of me on Wikipedia. Oh, that's a handsome picture, that? John. Uh, no. You know what? If you, I, I don't do a lot with Wikipedia, and and I don't want to get these guys ire up. But I would be, I would be more than happy to public domain a photo of you that I have taken. If you would like a different one up, I oh, could I try. Think that, I think that'd be much better. I think you got to work through a lot of channels on Wikipedia. Oh, is that right? You oh, know my goodness. You know, I, finally, I think I finally figured it out. I figured it out. A lot of people have talked about this. You must have heard, I think we might have even... Well, you're 43. Check that out. Yeah, I know. You wow. didn't know that? Yeah, well, I thought I was old. 
Yeah, I know. Wait a minute. I am older than you. Holy shit. Yeah, um, a lot of people are. There was a, a story that was going around a few weeks ago uh, about a, a guy who had written a book about the Haymarket riots. Did you mm-hmm. hear this story? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, I'll recount it in briefs, and I could get some aspects of this from Are you they, in briefs right now? I thought you were a boxer. You know what? I'm, wear, I'm actually wearing pants, and I'm wearing a shirt with a collar. That's more than I can say. I felt like wearing a shirt with a collar today, and I can't tell you why. I'm, uh, I'm in a bathrobe. Long story short, uh, the Haymarket riots. Is that, is that the one uh, where, the, where the people got, uh, with the, somebody threw a bomb, and uh, the guys got railroaded? Isn't that Haymarket uh, they riots? They were all throwing Haymarket punches. Oh, the haymakers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this guy is one of the, the biggest authorities on certain aspects of a topic. Let's just make this a black box. He is, a, he is more of an authority on aspects of this topic than pretty much anybody out there. But his edits were all rejected, and they basically told him to go away because he wasn't doing it the Wikipedia way. So even oh. after he went away and wrote a book about it, it still wasn't enough. And so here's, here's my take on Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not an author. It's a librarian. And that's what people don't understand. A librarian does not tell you what the book should say. It says that this is what the book says. Oh. So I'm just saying. Now, why is there, why is there, there seems to be like maybe an aqua, like, did somebody throw panties at you? Or is that a bathrobe? Oh, it's a streamer (coughs) of some kind. I am, I am very, uh, you know, I, 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 I can't complain about my uh, Wikipedia page because it's, because it's a, uh, because it's déclassé or it's a, it's bad form to complain about it. But you know, other people's, other people uh, of my peers, mm-hmm. songwriters, their Wikipedia pages have a table of contents and talks about all this stuff. And mine just feels like a kind of paragraph that someone wrote. Hmm. It makes me sad sometimes. Check out mine. I got it. my friend Graham, uh, Graham took a really good picture for mine. Mm. You know what depresses me about the computer? That's good. You know what? Good for you. What freaks me out is when I find like somebody who's like one of my favorite people in the world, and like their Wikipedia article is shorter than mine. That completely freaks me out. Yeah, that happens. Yeah, Grant Hart's real name is Grantsburg Vernon Hart. What a great name. Grantsburg. I, I That sounds made up. Grantsburg. What a great name. How did you get, you just on the internet and all of a sudden you're like, huh, Grant Hart, I've got to go look at the Minutemen. Oh, let's check out the Minutemen. Um, no, no, you know, that's just kind of how my brain works. Brain work, brain work. Wikipedia off of everything. It's, it's making me fake smart and, and, and actual dumb, and I just look at it all day long. All day long. That's what I do. I just look at it all day long. Something really max headroom just happened in our recording. Oh, I can see. Hang on. I'm really into it. I hope that you keep it. I, I, I think I can fix it. Hang on. Oh, wow. What happened? What was it? I, I think I can fix it. Well, you just came back. You were... You were down a little. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think uh, I slipped into another dimension there. It's probably because I was. We were talking about the Minutemen. I feel really strongly yeah. about the Minutemen. You got very. You 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 actually like went media beta 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 for a second. Really, like yeah. like Tweaky. Yeah, you like tw- like Tweaky from uh, from Buck <laughs> Rogers in the twenty first century. Man, that Aaron Gray when she would wear that little shiny suit. Oh, don't talk about Aaron Gray. Really, you got a problem with Aaron Gray? Oh, I love Aaron Gray. God, I love Aaron Gray. Going to derail my whole train of thought. Yeah. What about Gil Gerard? Whatever happened to him? Let's see if he's on Wikipedia. Hmm. I bet he is. He's yeah. like Tom Selleck. He's out there trying to get work. Well, Tom Selleck's very conservative, isn't he? He's a conservative guy, but I, I find... I, oh, I, shit. Gil Gerard. Oh, my I, God. I did a little bit of uh, research on Tom Selleck the other day, hmm. and, I, and, I, and I believe... Uh, oh, this is when I, when I had, to, had to walk away from you for a while. You were going <laughs> off... You had a little thing going about Matthew McConaughey for a while, oh, too, didn't yeah. you? McConaughey. Can't, can't abide it. Can't abide McConaughey, but... but, but, uh, but <laughs> you Tom, sounded like Nell for a minute. Tom Selleck. Can't abide McConaughey. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he... Uh, although I disagree with his politics... 
I believe that he is just one of those guys. He's like, if you were dating his daughter, he would be your daughter's dad, or he would be your wife's dad that you were like, yeah, we don't agree on politics, but I really love What's guy. his politics? He's just a Republican. He's what? A- Matthew McConaughey? I thought he played bongos in his underwear while he was no, high. I was talking about... I was talking about uh, Tom Selleck, Matthew oh, McConaughey's sorry. politics. You can tell what they are. They're just fucking stoner politics. Because Matthew <laughs> McConaughey is a stoner. Stoner politics. Okay, well, what, what, what's a, give me a plank in the platform of stoner politics. Oh, dude, legalize it. Don't mm, criticize it. Don't criticize it. it. Yeah. Stoner politics are basically are basically like, dude, why are you wearing leather shoes? Don't you know that cows produce methane? Oh, are you being a little reductive? Have you there, ever owned it, a pair of non-leather shoes? If there's one thing that I think you can you can safely be reductive on, yes. is that stoners are fucking idiots. <sighs> yeah. Listen, speaking as someone who was a stoner for many years... I don't I mind th- stoners. I just fucking hate hippies. Now, you know what? I'm trying not to say the word hate. I really hate hippies. I know you hate hippies. I really hate hippies. Hippies hippies get under my skin the way that almost everything gets under your skin. Yeah. Hippies are everything that's wrong with everything. Yeah. Hippies are bad. Mm. Stoners as a subset of hippies. Stoners are harmless. They're like zombies. You can swipe I, them away with one good hit, hit to the head. I don't think that they are harmless. There are stoners. You know, it's like uh, there are stoners all around you. You don't realize that. Oh, st- st- John, John Stone Roderick, you. you know, I, I, I don't have as strong a position on some of these things as you do I, in my perception, but like, there's just too many people smoking pot these days. It's got to stop. Yeah, yeah. It's got to, it's got to stop. You got to get onto something else. There's just, you're, you're, you're all smoking too. If you're listening to this show and you're still smoking pot, shame on you enough. Yeah. Stop smoking pot for God's sakes. Well, my God, take a walk or make some macaroni. There's got to be something else you can do. The first Is that, four, every the first, day. Really? You got to do that every day. The first 400 times you smoke pot. Yeah. You're like, wow. That takes me to my sophomore year of college. Dude, did you see that cat? Did you see that cat? That cat looked like Jerry Lewis, man. Like the first 400 times you smoke pot, it's amazing. <laughs> because did you see that cat? Right? Yes. Did you see that orange? Oh my God, did you see that orange? <laughs> that was totally an orange. For 400 times, you can get away with, did you see that orange? Right. Oh my God, did you see that guy? But for the 400, I know that time, I see green and you see green, but how do I know that we're seeing the same green? Exactly. The 401st time, it's over. Yeah. And every subsequent time after that, it's over. I think they you call just, it, they call it diminishing returns. It is exactly you're what not, it is. You're not, you're not gonna, you're not, I don't know. Now, there are some people, I gotta tell you, I think there are some people where the pot is the only thing that's keeping them from, from getting really fucking weird. But I think a lot of people, they stay fucking weird because of the pot and they, and they kind of like it. Yeah, I mean, I uh, admittedly there are people that are using pot as a as a medicinal substance, and I'm not talking about people with fake glaucoma. Yeah, but I'm talking about people that take a little hit of pot every day as an anxiety reliever or whatever. And okay, fine, I'm not gonna get all up in your boca about it. But stoners, no, bad, bad. Stop being stoners. It always, it's they're like swingers or something. It's like it's always there. It's always there. Even if they're not swinging, the swinging thing is always kind of there. Maybe that's my hang-up, which is fine, but it's a hang-up I wish everybody had. And with the stoners, it's just a matter of fucking time before somebody takes out the one-hitter, and then, then, you know what I mean? There's the inertia. Then everybody's got to get high, and they sit very still. Right. Party over. And even if you're not silly. And here's the other thing. 1999, and here's the problem now. You get into your 50s, and you're doing that shit every day in fleece, you know? It's, it's not making you interesting. I shouldn't say this, John. I don't like to judge, but really so many people need to be judged. Well, this is the thing. All you have to do is go to Holland. 
And can I just literally beg you to not get me started on the Dutch? You walk around in Holland and you talk to people and you realize nobody, no normal people in Holland smoke pot, right? <laughs> no, really? Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their attitude about it is like, oh, right. Pot's I thought that was here. like being a dick in France. I thought it was just what you did. Oh, no, no, no. Not, a, not, not at all. Tourists, right. tourists. Tourists and what, I mean, the Dutch are very, they're, they're very quick to say like losers, Right, I mean, it, pot's legal, so the so the mystery is gone, mm-hmm. and so you, all they have to do is just see what what happens when you smoke marijuana, which is that it makes you uh, a dope, and so ninety nine percent of the normal, like your average Dutch person, ha- has no. There's no mystery about smoking pot, and they don't do it. They're just like, yeah, that's just for the that's for the tourist district, and that's for like assholes. It's okay. I think not, everybody here eats uh, sourdough bread and rice-a-roni. Oh, in San Francisco. Now, throwing yeah. fish. How often do you go and watch them throw fish? You know, you, you're, you're going through and you've got somewhere to go and uh, they're throwing fish. And it's actually, it helps because the fish throwing collects, it collects the detritus people around the fish throwing. And you can get sort of down the stairs and through the market. Oh, without. it's an attractive nuisance, but a good kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I support the fish throwing. It's it, it, because you know it localizes. If you're gonna throw, if you're gonna throw a hand grenade somewhere, mm-hmm. that's where you that's where you would do it. But but is but, there a hand yeah. grenade throwing demonstration, or are you talking about as a rogue? You're the rogue. I've been, thinking, I've been thinking about actually having a little booth down there at the market and demonstrating hand grenade throwing. <laughs> you know, my grandfather was a hand grenade. <laughs> I, I just I'm going to write this down. I do not want to lose track. I don't know if we have time today. I would love to discuss some concepts for you having a booth by the fish throwing place. A, bo- a booth at the market. Yeah, my grandfather was a hand growth hand hand grenade throwing instructor in World War One. <laughs> Way. He taught people how to throw potato mashers. So that was the Germans had the potato mashers. The Ger- what Germans do, had the potato mashers. What did we, we have? We had uh, pineapples. Style we had hand pineapples. Grenades. Pineapple hand grenades. Is that right? Yeah. He was a hand grenade instructor. Are you kidding me? And then he went in. And then he went and fought in the fought in the war. Where did he go to France? He went to France. Did he That's all, where the war was being did he, fought. Did he? Uh, did he have all his parts after the training? He had all of his parts except for his mind parts. <laughs> Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, I don't mean to laugh. Was it PTSD or because he was fucking fucking crazy from hand grenades? <coughs> yeah, it was. You know, at the time they called it shell shock. Oh, you're talking about after he came back from France. When he came back from France. Oh, I'm sorry. Was... I shouldn't have laughed. No, no, no. It's all right. I never met him because he died in. The I bet 50s. you could fuck with him though. But he uh, he had a hard time. He did not reintegrate into uh, the world very well. Ugh. But that was not at a time when anybody had a lot of sympathy for that. And you know, here's your therapy. Get behind the plow. Yeah. Start pushing your plow. So what he did was he went to uh, Los Angeles and he lived in one of those Bukowski hotels in downtown L.A. <laughs> and What's he, the noise? And, What's the noise? <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm getting well, so I can't <laughs> make the sound. But uh, yeah, he drank himself to death in a in a flop house hotel in L.A. This is this is the problem with innovation and evolution of technology, John. There's a time when you need a hand gro- hand grenade throwing expert, and there's a time when you don't need it as much. Yeah, that's right. You come back to t- come back to America, and you're like, I can do this, and they go, hmm, mm-hmm. no, we don't need those now. My dad's best friend back in Ohio, uh, one of his hunting buddies. Um, 
was uh, was big in the police department, and, and this is not funny. But he uh, he, was, he was a he was a fat cop. You mean or he no? Was, he was an awesome cop. He was super. He was a super cool guy. He was a stand up. He was guy. high up, high up in the police. Well, high ish up. I mean, I think he was probably at the you know at the at the captain lieutenant colonel. Con- not, you know what I mean? I don't know. Whatever the level, he's probably like a, you know he's high up. But anyway, he one his job was to teach people how to be safe. One of his jobs was to do instruction on how to be safe with stuff that was super deadly. Hmm. And a dynamite cap blew up in his fucking hand. Oh, ow. Yeah. And it blew off his fingers? Yeah. Oh, that sucks. He ended up with uh, one of those shaka bra uh, hang loose deals. You know, when, when I was... Uh, they had to, they, I, he had a thumb and a pinky, and then they made a shaka bra. That's, the, that's pretty cool. Devil horns. No, no, when not I, even that. Not oh, even oh, that. Right. Oh, no, no, he pink. had more like Hawaii hang loose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. If he had the devil horns, that'd be fucking awesome. When I was a kid in Alaska, there were um, uh, blasting caps were a uh, were kind of a problem because there were blasting caps lying around. Apparently, um, <laughs> what, because, from, from parades or like how, well, how did no, that happen? No, no, people were. I mean, there was a lot of there was a lot of dynamite in Alaska, oh, it's like clear time. forests and stuff. Yeah, people were mining gold and they were building track for the railroad. And I mean, I the the, the, the friend of my dad's had a big. Had one of those big metal lockers in his backyard that was just full of dynamite, and I was. Are like, you shitting me? Just sitting yeah, around? Sitting around. I mean, we had a padlock on it, but <laughs> I was a I was a total pyromaniac as a kid. I could and so see that the railroad had uh, the railroad had because my dad worked at the railroad. The railroad had all this kind of uh, ex- all these different kind of explosive warehouses where they were, you know blasting rock and stuff and they were and they were blasting rock on the highway the whole time I was growing up. Anyway, so there were posters all over of all color posters. I wish I had one now. Of all the different kinds of blasting caps. They're beautiful. I'm on the Wikipedia page right now. They're and they beautiful. were like these posters that said like don't play with these. These are not don't if you see one of these, don't play with it. All right, like that'll and, help. I know I have. That's like post- having a poster with boobs on it and saying, "Don't think about this." Don't think about it. No, seriously. Ha- here's some more. I had this blasting cap poster on my wall, and it's all I thought about. <laughs> I just I would walk down the street with my hands clasped behind my back, <laughs> eyes down on the ground, just looking for blasting caps. <laughs> all I wanted to find blasting caps, and I did find uh, these things. The railroad had things called torpedoes, which were um, which were little little sacks of gunpowder and gravel that you would that you would clamp to the railroad track and when the train ran over it it would explode not loud enough to hurt the train or the track but just loud enough to signal the engineer that there was something up ahead on the track so if you how did how did it get there well if you worked at the railroad oh so it was the equivalent of a signal it was a signal, right? Okay. You drove you drove on one of those trucks that could get up on the tracks, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you would say, "Oh, there's a bridge out," or "Oh, there's something, you know, there's a there's something bad up ahead." So let's go two miles up the road here. It was before radios, I guess. I don't know why they they didn't just call them on the radio, but go two miles up the track. You put one of these torpedoes on the track, and then the train runs over it, and bam! And then the engineer knows to stop the train. But I don't think I'd like that at all. I just even knowing that could happen. Yeah. I don't. I wouldn't like that at all. Well, so I, ha- I, so I did manage to scrounge a couple of these torpedoes. No shit. Because I was in, you know, I was in some some warehouse shed with my dad and a bunch of men in hard hats, and they all turned around to look at a valve or something, and I was like, "Aha, torpedoes!" And I grabbed, <laughs> stuffed the pockets of my jacket with them. But the problem with them is that it 
they require the weight of a locomotive to set them off. <laughs> like you can't hit them with the hammer and get them to explode. I mean, they what are we? Need- t- I'm sorry. What are we talking? We talking about a firecracker, an M80? Like how much pop? Oh, it's bigger than an M80. You're kidding, and you're you're trying to make that pop? Oh no, I wasn't hitting them with a like, hammer. Drop a safe on it or something. I wasn't an idiot. <laughs> but I definitely, would, I definitely would like throw them into a campfire and run. Oh, you're kidding! But um, that's insane. Yeah. Oh my God, the things I used to do. <laughs> One of my favorite things. I'm, I my 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 parents, I think, figured out that I did this, and it was a source of much fear. <laughs> but you know, when I was home alone in the house, I would open up the flue in the fire uh, in the um, fireplace. And I would sit with cans of spray paint and WD-40, oh, and I would light, you know, I'd light a lighter, and I'd spray the WD-40 into the fireplace, you know, making this incredible flamethrower. WD-40 is an amazing flamethrower. Mm-hmm. And I would watch the flame come up the stream of WD-40, and right as it got to the nozzle, I would stop, you know, I would let, let go, and the flame would... Oh, are you kidding me? And I would sit for hours at a time and just... just flamethrower into the into the fireplace and watching the flame come up right to the nozzle and then I'd stop. It was this, this game I would play just, I just loved it. The fire. Oh, the fire. <laughs> uh-huh. Alright. I think that's good. <laughs>